And now, a segment from the best of The Night Side with Barb DiGiulio podcast. Listen and download the latest podcast at Newstalk1010.com. When the University of Houston's football players arrive for a game, they know what to expect as a prelude to the coming hours of brutality as they file into the stadium. They will have to get a kiss on the cheek from their head coach, Tom Herman. It's kind of unusual, especially for a sport as physical as football and one that sort of embodies the most rigid ideals of manhood. Uh, Coach Herman says there's no better way to demand the painful sacrifices of the game than to convey his affection for the players. He said, how do you motivate a human being to do things against his own nature? There's two things, love and fear. And he says to him, love wins every time. One of the players on the team is a safety. His name is Garrett Davis. He says a kiss on the cheek is when he shows his love for us. No one here is thinking, oh, I shouldn't let him kiss me. Davis said the players were originally taken aback early last season, which was Herman's first as the head coach, when he planted a kiss on the strength coach during practice. Then he extended the ritual to all the players before their first game. I think this is not only unusual, um, but also I think it's a really great contrast, as he says, to how physical and how brutal the game of football can be. Is men showing affection to other men something very common in your family, or is it something that you would consider more out of the ordinary? For the men out there, did you grow up with other men being affectionate with you, or was that something that just wasn't done? Uh, my husband's family is very affectionate. Everybody is affectionate with everybody, and the men hug and kiss, and it has extended to our kids, and I really like that. I really like that, that they're comfortable, and um, it's such a positive thing, I think, as young men are growing up, to get that affection from other men, from family members, from uncles, from grandfathers, even from cousins. It's a good way to be. Is that how it is in your family? So some psychologists have spoken out about the coach doing this with his players, and uh, they think it's fantastic. One uh, psychology professor at New York University says he's disrupting a stereotype about boys and men, a notion of masculinity that says boys and men are only driven by the desire for competition and autonomy. Her name is Niobe Way, and she says all the research emphasizes that humans are actually not driven by competition and, auto and autonomy, even men, because that's what we always think about men. She says what we are driven by is the desire to be in connected communities. One of the things that really got me from the story is... The coach saying that some of his players said it was the first time they had ever been kissed by a man. He said several of his players grew up fatherless, and he said the fact that they had never been kissed by a man is a shame in our society. You know, I, I have to agree with that because I think that need, that desire to be in connected communities makes a lot of sense. Everybody. I don't care who you are. Everybody wants to feel included and to feel loved. And I think 
that being able to show that affection within families is so important for boys. So important for them to be able to be kind of, I don't know, is it vulnerable? Is it Farinac? Yes, this is Farinac. Hi. Hi, great to hear from you. Go ahead. Thank you so much. Just I wanted to let you know what is something cultural. I'm coming from the country that having affection between men, you know, doesn't really matter. It's the way to showing how much you love each other. And like, I really love it that, you know, we're just, just something coming. There's nothing to fear or scared or shame of that. So it's good, and we have it, and really, you know, we never have a problem. It's something culturally that you can work on it. I feel, I feel like um, boys grow up feeling more secure when they have that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually, you know what, I agree. So before that, I came in Canada seven years ago. I didn't know, I didn't realize that it is something weird, because all the time we are hugging, we are kissing on the cheek. There's nothing wrong with that, just to show how we miss each other, yeah. especially the men. So just, I find here, you know, maybe, you know what, just if you do it, some people look at you just like it's strange or something is different with you, but it's not. Just it, This is something that we can implant it and we can work on it. I agree with you. I love that idea. And I, I don't think it should be viewed as weird. But yes, I agree. There are some people who maybe do think it's unusual. Hi, TJ. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Go ahead with your comments. Well, to me, it's just natural. I'm a 66-year-old father. And when each of my kids were born, I have one daughter. We just automatically hugged and kissed them. And I continued it right through. And they don't seem to be, they accept it as the norm. They would find it very strange if I was to discontinue now. So to, to me, it's just a natural thing to happen. I, I, I don't see why some people should be making a big deal out of it down south. Did you grow up with a lot of affection from your father? Uh, from all of my parents, but no hug. I must say, no hugging or kissing. Sure, the, the, I left Europe to come to here. Well, actually, I went from Europe to Africa and then came to Canada. And I always remember the morning that I was leaving my father. He hugged me. And that was the first time it actually had ever occurred. That's interesting. That's interesting, yeah. I just knew, and um, we all knew, we often speak about it. My my siblings are all in the 60s as well, and uh, we all say the same thing. We just knew that they loved us instinctively from the various different things that they did for us out of the norm. Yeah, TJ, thanks a lot for the call. And I agree. I don't think it's a lack, certainly not a lack of love, but some people just not that comfortable with affection. Hi, Wayne. Welcome to the show. Hi, Barb. I called you the other day, so I'm calling back. (laughs) Well, thank you. It's great to hear from you again. Um, I think, personally, I don't have a problem with men showing affection. I I don't, but my dad and I would sometimes um, hug each other when he was alive, or my dad would, you know touch me on the shoulder or something. We we didn't, my dad and I didn't kiss when I grew up, but I mean, we would hug. Mm-hmm. D- did you feel like growing up that you, whether it was your dad or your mom or the whole family situation, did you have, uh, did you feel like you grew up with a lot of affection? I did, yes. Okay, so that's probably why, so you don't do it, but you're comfortable with it or you were with your dad. Yeah. And my uncle, like, to a degree, my dad's brother will sometimes, like, we we hugged on the day my dad passed away. Um, we shake hands mainly, but sometimes my uncle will touch me on the shoulder. And again, it doesn't, you know, I don't, 
Um, I will let my uncle initiate, mainly. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting when you touched on, you know, men who feel they might be stigmatized. Right. Like, you know, like, I, like as I say, for be like, and they might think people think they are gay. Well, I, I think, I, I, I think after listening to that, I, I, I think a lot of men, I, I don't know personally of any men that have struggled with that, but, you know, that, that, there, there could be, like, so many factors, you know, like, because so many boys are fatherless, and that's why I say, you know, I don't have a problem with affection because, you know, I, I did have a good family, you know, mm-hmm. my mom and dad were married for 31 years, and, um, so, yeah, I, I, I think, it's opened, excuse the expression, but it's opened my eyes. Like I'm saying that because I'm the totally blind caller that called the other day. Oh, yes, right. Wayne, thanks a lot for the call. I'm going to cut you off because we're almost out of time. And I wanted to get Tyler in with his comments. Hi, Tyler. How's it going? Great, thank you. Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to, I was just saying to your screener there, uh, my old man is as traditional as they come. And uh, he just shows his love in a completely different way. And I didn't really understand it until I saw the... Uh, the song Father's Love, mm-hmm. and holy crow, every time I come home, he checks my car over, he'll, you know, do all that kind of stuff, but at, growing up, unless he was smacking me across the back of the head, he never even touched me, so it's just, it's, it's interesting to see the, the different backgrounds of people, and then most recently, we were just in France, and boy, do they ever kiss on both cheeks there, and yeah. I saw him <laughs> in the most uncomfortable position I've ever <laughs> seen him in. Now, are you affectionate with your friends, or do you kind of follow the same model? Um... Depends on the situation. Uh, I'm a big hugger myself. Once I once I've known somebody for a long time, and so is my dad to to people outside the family, not male oriented, but but obviously uh, with females and and alike. Uh, I I don't think I could say I'm I'm affectionate to my friends, but definitely more interactive than my father, for sure. Interesting stuff, Tyler. Thanks a lot for the call. And yeah, I, not to say that people who don't show affection don't love, They and people have been calling in and saying, I know they love me in different ways. We just weren't very affectionate growing up. Um, so that's just, yeah, it's just one of those things. Politics is not a topic that I... Um, ever really want to talk to people about. I mean, it's one thing we talk about it with work and things like that, but at a social function, uh, getting together with friends, I find oftentimes it can lead to some very heated discussions. And uh, it's interesting, you know, comedians often include political references in their work, but it, I don't know if it backfired. This seems like a lot of people to leave a show, about 200 people walked out of Amy Schumer's show in Tampa, Florida yesterday when she called Donald Trump an orange sexual assaulting fake college starting monster. She was met with loud booing about halfway through the show when her jokes switched from raunchy topics to more topical matters, including gun control and the upcoming presidential election. I think we have some sound of what it was like, yeah, when people were booing her. Um, okay, so just so you know, from now on, if you yell out, you're going to get thrown out. Just so you know, if you, if you yell out, I'll say, thrown out, you get thrown out. Okay, 
So everybody point to the people booing. Just point to the, okay, so go. Told you. Yeah, so uh, that's got to be tough. Right. To be on stage and to be getting all of that happening. And I've seen her do something like this before where she will just call security over if somebody also is heckling her nonstop. And she'll just say, can you take that person out during her show? She asked a Trump supporter to join her up on stage so he could explain why he was voting for Trump. The audience member said he was voting for Trump because he didn't trust Hillary Clinton. So then Schumer asked do you get worried at all with how impulsive he is that he gets so fired up from Saturday Night Live doing a skit on him? Do you worry he'll be impulsive and get us in a lot of effing trouble we can't get out of? So when the booing started, Amy Schumer said anyone who is booing can leave. And she said, of course, we're in Florida. You're going to boo. I know you're here to laugh, but you choose how you're going to live your life. And it's just too important. So you heard her say that, just so you know, from now on, if you yell out, you are going to get thrown out. So 200 people left the show, were not impressed with the fact that she veered into the political area. And I'm going to tell you some of the uh, tweets that were sent out. But is talking politics something that you do on a regular basis with friends and family, or do you try to avoid it altogether? I think everybody has sort of a different level of discussion with different people. I have some people in my life who hardly follow anything. They don't, they just don't. They just don't look at the paper on a daily basis. They don't really pay attention, even when there are elections in Canada. And so that would be very mild discussion of whatever headlines appear sort of entertainment wise, but they're not really paying attention. Then there are other people who are a little bit more tuned in and I like to get their opinion just to see where they're going with their thoughts and who they like and who they don't like. And then there are some people who have such strong opinions. I mean, I think it's okay to have a strong opinion, but some people actually get upset if you don't agree with them or if you say you're not going to vote for the person that they are going to vote for. And those things tend to escalate. Hi, Paul. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Glad to be here. Thank you. Go ahead. Uh, I do business with a lot of people in the U.S. And I have a, a dear friend who's a client and he's in New Hampshire. I, I'd call him an, uh, a tea partier. And I sent him an email once, very innocuous. It just kind of said, you know, say what you will about Donald, uh, about, sorry, Obama. But uh, he's got kind of a cool policy where um, he's going to um, regulate, uh, give, give the truck manufacturers until 2027 to kind of gently reduce the, uh, the emissions. I thought, you know, you can't really get too upset about that. <laughs> yeah. He, he emailed me back, and he's a dear friend. We've had drinks together. We've been out many nights. He said, don't ever communicate don't ever email me that man's name do not communicate me in any wow. way shape or form on that subject or we will have nothing to talk about and i, I you know as a canadian who just wanted to engage in a little bit of uh you know poli side uh, discourse it was a complete shutdown uh, he took it very hard interesting and you never know and i guess they uh in certain cases tend to have such strong feelings that you offended him just by mentioning the name I stepped on a landmine, and I do a lot of business in the U.S. I tread very 
gingerly when it comes to candidates, and I do not initiate anymore. Paul, thank you so much for the call, especially right now with this campaign. You are either one side or the other, and you got to be careful how you uh, tread. You need to tread lightly. Here is Dave. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. How, go Where ahead. To begin? Where to begin as I'm pondering what to say? I think I think too much is part of my problem. Well, years ago, my father, who's now dead, and his mother, who's also dead, they would talk very briefly about conservative, and my dad was NDP, and my grandmother had to vote. The conservative member just loved them. So I... Through my life, I've seen people argue about politics, and what I've discovered in my own situation is if it looks to even begin to be heated, I just stop talking about it because it's not worth it. You often can't change someone's mind. My kids, however, my daughter's 18. You know how kids will text and talk? Mm -hmm. How about uh, 12 hours of arguing because someone dissed Trump, who she believes is the best candidate? And she's a pretty good arguer. And this went on and on. And I'm saying, you got to drop this. This is this is this is crazy. And what I find a little ironic, if I can just inject a little bit of what I think. Sure. Billy Bush and Donald Trump. I just found something on the internet the other day. They used to hang around quite a bit together. They were they had this so-called bromance apparently, mm-hmm. and they used to joke around a lot and make all kinds of silly comments to each other. Now, I'm not going to defend Mr. Trump because I really don't know what he's going to be if he becomes president. I personally think he's the best chance based on the world politics that are going on with Russia and everything and, and, and all the dirt that I've read about um, Hillary. I mean, yeah, but that's so that's interesting because you have an opinion that would not be very popular, especially among people who maybe don't look into all aspects of it and just know all the stuff that's come out. Um, about the allegations against him. So do you have this discussion in your workplace or with your friends? Would you ever give them that opinion? Definitely, because I, I'm very opinionated, but I'm open. And I've told my daughter, if you're going to argue for Trump, make sure you have an out, because he may not be Mr. Wonderful. Um, but you have to base on what you read. And what, what I think the, fury, the, the frustration with people is they're not getting both sides of the story. You watch Fox and CNN, hugely different views. I tend to watch InfoWars, I'm sorry to say, but because I want that cutting-edge other side, and I will review what I've seen there and see if it's true. And um, I just think there's a big war going on here that I've never seen before, and most people argue they haven't either. Yeah, it's very unusual. Dave, thanks a lot for the call. It's very unusual, and it reminds me a lot of when... um, when the the stuff with Rob Ford started and how I actually canceled a newspaper subscription and I told them I'm canceling because your coverage is so one-sided. Like, I just can't take it. Can you just give me the news without... It was just so one-sided, even aside from the columnists who are supposed to have an opinion. Um, and that And that sort of is what happens. I actually read something about the Washington Post and the New York Times have put almost all of their resources into going after uh, Donald Trump in the last couple of weeks. 416-872-1010. Text us at 71010. Do you dare talk politics with friends and family? Or is that something you try to just, you have your own opinion, but you stay out of it because you don't want to lose relationships? Hey, Gary, welcome to the show. Hi, Barb. Hi. Is this a topic you will uh, approach with your friends? Oh, sure, sure. I got no problem. You know, like... uh, Everybody likes to uh, say that you know uh, there, there's it's 
cut and dried. One person is good and one person is bad. I've never in my life watching American politics and president, and I've went through them all since Eisenhower, never seen two worse candidates. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It, you know, but I've talked to people who think, well, if you don't hate Trump, then there's something wrong with you. I don't hate the man. I think the one thing about the guy is he's crude, he's ignorant, and all that, but it's all out front, very similar to Rob, you know, yeah. very similar to Rob. And, you know, they're, they're, but her, we're, we're not getting half the stuff, you know. They, they won't talk about this WikiLeaks stuff. They're just putting it on the side, like you say, the Washington Post and that. They, they've got plans just to, just you know, eviscerate this man. And it's terrible what's going on down there. Gary, thanks a lot for the call. I want to squeeze one more in. Cameron is on the line. Hey, Cameron. Hi, Barbara. How are you? Great, thanks. Go ahead. Uh, listen, I'm, I'm in media myself. I'm a publisher, and uh, talking with friends or family, I find we know more about what's going on in the elections than what mainstream media will tell us. Uh, yes. Definitely more than what you know, Mr. Trump or Ms. Clinton know, or what, the, what they what they are willing to discuss. So do you find when you are talking politics with people, you're probably the most informed person? I do, but I'm, I'm really impressed and surprised because a lot of people... Uh, they have their own, if they go online, they don't watch mainstream media, and they know a lot about, you know, stuff that you don't even read about in the front, you know, in the newspaper or, all, you know, on, on 6 o'clock news. Uh, like your previous caller talked about WikiLeaks. Yeah. You don't hear about that a lot in the mainstream media. But people hear about it, they read about it, they know a lot about it. Interesting stuff, Cameron. Thanks a lot for the call. Thanks to everyone who called in. I was on Twitter today and I saw a really interesting tweet sent out by Dr. Brett Belchetz, and it was about annual physical exams and whether or not we actually need to be doing them every single year. So I thought, hey, let's give him a call, bring him on to talk about it. Dr. Brett Belchetz joins us now. Hey, welcome back to the show. Hello there. Thanks for having me. Yes, thanks a lot for doing this. Um, so this is interesting because I am one of those people who does not go every single year. Uh, I usually go if I'm not feeling well or if I feel like something might be wrong. Uh, but I can't say that I go every single year for a physical. Is that bad? Actually, the research would say that that's actually not bad at all. So when we look at the evidence that's out there, uh, it used to be decades ago that the predominant thinking was that everybody should be going to this annual physical exam, that if you were missing this annual checkup, there was a really good chance that bad things were happening in your body that you weren't going to catch. And so we brought, you know, we tried to invent all of these physical exam maneuvers, these screening tests, these things that we would do to try to make sure that we were catching bad things. And what we've started to do over the last few years is we've started to review all of these things that we did in the periodic health exam or the annual physical exam, as it's sometimes called, to see whether or not the evidence showed that we were actually saving lives or reducing the burden of illness through these screening exams. And what we found actually on a number of reviews is that's actually not the case. So there was actually a really big review done in 2012. It was published in the British Medical Journal. And what this journal found, they published what's called a Cochrane Review. And a Cochrane Review is a very systematic analysis of thousands of other studies to actually see what the, what the summary of all of the evidence shows. And what this Cochrane Review showed is that we were in no way reducing either mortality or what we call morbidity, which is the rate of illness, as a result of these exams. Because what we end up doing 
is we actually don't catch that much illness that we wouldn't have caught otherwise, but we subject people to a lot of unnecessary testing. So you can imagine when we find something that's slightly unusual on a periodic health exam, we're forced to investigate it further. And the tests that we have in medicine when we investigate these findings further aren't always harmless. So a lot of the biopsies and further tests that we do actually can cause a lot of harm. So a lot of these things that we're doing are actually hurting people more than doing any good. I had this conversation um, with my doctor a while ago, and it's this sort of thing where I know there are always exceptions, and uh, doctors find things that happen to be brewing, and the person has absolutely no idea. My doctor tells me it's really hard to detect stuff unless there are symptoms. Well, so the recommendation really is that people who have symptoms should get checked out. And there are certain screening tests that need to be done, no matter whether you have symptoms or not. And that's not part of a periodic health exam. There are just certain screening tests that have to be done. So we, so we should be screening for colorectal cancer in people over the age of 50. And that has nothing to do with your annual health exam. That's just something that we've learned. But, you know, every population is different. So if you have a family history with multiple family members right. who've had colorectal cancer, then it might not be over the age of 50. We need to tailor those recommendations to you. You know, there's other things. We used to recommend uh, digital rectal examination in men over the age of 40 to screen for prostate cancer. And we also used to recommend at one point in time that maybe we should use something called the PSA, which is a blood test that that we use to screen for prostate cancer as well. And what we found actually is that when we started using those tests a lot more to screen, we actually were catching a lot of cancers that weren't actually things that were that anybody was going to die of. And we were causing people a lot of harms. So there were many people that were suffering as a result of the investigations, the biopsies that were being done and the procedures that were being done. And the side effects were awful. And we weren't really saving a lot of lives when we reviewed the evidence. So a lot of the recommendations now is that we just shouldn't be doing that at all. So all of these recommendations really, when, when we sort of add them up, we say, you know, we're not really in general catching things that we wouldn't have caught. And we are catching a lot of things that we really just don't need to catch and we're causing a lot of harm. So I think the better guideline is there are certain things that out there that we recommend that we say, you just have to get this test, like the colorectal screening, like mammography in women, although even that has some controversy attached to it. But I would recommend that people follow the guidelines for that. But outside of those obvious tests that we should be going for, that ritualistic exam where you go and your doctor top to bottom does that physical examination, feeling all the parts of your body, listening to everything, that is not adding a lot of benefit to your health. Hmm. That's really interesting stuff. I wanted to ask, Dr. Brett Belchetz is my guest, and we're talking about a story that he tweeted out today saying that evidence suggests the annual physical exam may not be as necessary as people uh, once thought it was. How... how um how challenging has it been, I guess, would be my question for doctors, with people now doing self-diagnosis via all of the Internet sites they can visit? Well, you know, that's an ongoing challenge, I think, for all of us. Uh, you know, I think a little bit of knowledge is a very dangerous thing, and that's the situation that we have when people are Googling their symptoms. Because, first of all, what you have to understand is, there's two categories in which we're seeing harm from this. So category number one is the person who's well-intentioned. They go to sites that are good sites. They go to WebMD, but unfortunately, they don't really know how to prioritize the findings that they get there when they see their search. So for instance, almost any symptom that you type in when you go to Web, WebMD, eventually it's going to tell you that you might have cancer. Mm. And you need to be a physician to be able to say, you know what, that's ridiculous. You don't have cancer with that symptom versus to say, yes, this is actually the symptom that's very likely going to be the one that leads to cancer. So that there is a big problem with that because we have a lot of 
people coming in the door, really believing they have things that they don't have. But the other side of the equation, which is actually very dangerous, is there are a lot of predators on the internet that are out there to take advantage of people that are out there symptom searching. And so what you will find is that whatever it is that you search, there will be 50 different websites that appear to be legitimate that will come up with knowledge that appears to be legitimate to try to address your concern. But what is not really clear about these websites is most of them are actually not legitimate. They're usually owned by companies that are trying to sell some sort of good that is either not safe, not authorized, or not proven to help your problem, but it's somebody who's figured out how to make a website look like a medical website. And when you Google that sickness, it's going to make this product look like the answer to all of your prayers. So I really advise people when you're sick or when you have symptoms, do see your doctor, get an educated medical opinion. There is a reason why medical school training is four to 10 years in total for somebody to be out there to be qualified. It's not something that a Google search is going to equip you to just understand right off of the bat. And secondly, use the internet with great care. So be very careful which sites you go to. If you do decide that you want to Google things, make sure that you're ending up at a reputable site. So something like WebMD is one that I recommend to all of my patients because it is very, very reputable. The articles and the research there are very, very high quality. There's nothing that you're going to find on there that is there to make somebody else profit. Dr. Brett Belchett, it's always interesting. Thanks so much for this. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. He is an ER physician, medical expert, Dr. Brett Belchetz. Ticket prices apparently set to rise next year as U.S. airlines curb growth. Delta Airlines expected to lead the pack in uh, boosting their airfares. And joining us to talk about it, President and Managing Director at AirTrav Inc., Robert Kokonis. Welcome back to the show. Hey, Barb. Back to hear your voice. Yeah, you too. I haven't talked to you for a while. It's good to have you back. So can you explain in layman's terms why Delta is doing this? Well, I mean, obviously, airlines are always trying to squeeze in what additional profit um, they can. In the past, I'd say the past five or six years, the, the we call it the revenue environment, which is you know, a lot of you know, recessions, economic slowdown. It's been relatively tough for the major carriers to raise their fares. And on top of that, we've had the growth of low-cost, and in the U.S.'s case, these ultra-low-cost carriers like Spirit and Allegiant nipping you know, around the heels. So there's not a lot of carriers like Delta and United America can do other than control the amount of seats they put in the market. Obviously, they have a lot of seats. You know, it's going to be tough to raise prices if they restrict the number of seats they put put at play in the market they have a better chance of controlling prices or they hope in this case, like Delta, they're going to be able to uh, raise prices. Right. So is this, is this about uh, losing money or just wanting mm. to increase profits? Well, again, profits, a combination of revenues and costs, right? So as I said, the, the revenue, you know, fair environment has been, pretty, has been pretty anemic the last couple of years. So the carriers are looking, you know, any way they can to get those, revenues up and plus we've seen as you know oil costs have been not a huge increase the past year but we're sort of hitting that $50 level whereas a year and a half ago we were probably in the low 30s and, and that does have enough an impact as well too but don't forget on the revenue side not only are airlines trying to tweak the number of seats they put in the market which can affect in this case the price but we're still seeing a continued uh, effort by all carriers to levy these these hated surcharges and ancillary fees on everything from Coke and peanuts to your extra bag. Well, that's the thing too, right? Because we've been, it hasn't even been that many years that now we pay to bring luggage on board. If you want to book specific seats, 
um, no more free food or free drinks. And yet still, I guess they're, and you say, they're trying to squeeze every extra penny they can. Which a friend like, like Kevin O'Leary uh, never has to pay because Kevin's always sitting in business class every time I've seen him fly between New York and Toronto. But for the rest of us, um, you know, we've we got to face these fees. But I, I've been a defender of the airlines the last several years, which is the old airline model, which is one size fits all. Barb wants to check a bag and Robert doesn't want to check a bag. How do you square that circle in terms of the base price to make it equitable to to everybody, to a certain degree, I think the airlines had to change the way they operate. And, you know, like it or lump it, I mean, I think consumers are slowly or maybe begrudgingly starting to get used to what will be interesting in this country will be to see beyond the early launch of Newly Fair, there's two other airlines that, that want to start as these ultra-low-cost carriers. If they do gain traction and, and gain a, a following, does that mean that, that passengers are really going to get used to these these extra charges because in the case of these ultra-low costs, man, they charge for everything. They'll even charge you for a carry-on bag. Robert Kokonis is my guest, President and Managing Director at AirTrev, Inc. How well do the no-frills airlines do? I know there are uh, a number of them south of the border. You mentioned New Leaf here. Uh, do they put a dent in the bigger airlines um, uh, business? They really have started to, in fact, as far as actual results, I think it was last year, Spirit Airlines, which is uh, one of the top two ultra-low costs in the U.S., they were uh, forecast to be the most profitable airline, not in the U.S., not in North America, in the world. Hmm. So, you know, even though they nickel and diamonds for everything, that particular model seems to be working. So when they're all small... Maybe, you know, the major carriers don't feel that much pain, but as these carriers like Allegiant and Spirit and Frontier, Ryanair in Europe, also Wizz Air in Europe, now we have this Norwegian air shuttle, and, uh, and, and whatever is going to happen in Canada, um, they, they start to grow and they start to chip away at the market share of the majors. One could say that the type of passenger that the ultra-low cost are going after are folks the WestJet, for example, in Air Canada, otherwise wouldn't be carrying. These are people that either take the family sedan or they only fly every four or five years they can't afford it. It's a whole segment of the market that's been forgotten by the majors. Mm. So, you know, there's two ways to look at it. But at the end of the day, uh, these ultra-low cost do start to chip away some of the market share of the big boys. We're talking about ticket prices uh, on the rise in 2017 <laughs> as U.S. airlines curb growth. What kind of increases do you think we're looking at? Well, I would say probably. I, mean, I don't think you're going to see much more uh, out of line than the rate of inflation. Um, part of it will be the issue of you know where oil prices are going to go. Um, as I said, we we're just touching on $50 right now. Um, I think the U.S. Energy Information Administration has forecast 55 to $56 oil next year, and the airlines will do what they can to pass it on. Don't forget, in North America, Barb, there are no fuel surcharges on, on revenue tickets. I think there are some frequent fire points, but not on revenue tickets. So, so you know, that will be the wild card, as always, will be where is oil prices going to go to. But you know, other than any uh, increase in oil out of line, I would say, you know, maximum 2 to 3% on um, your base fare. Okay, and um, aside from the no-frills carriers, will we ever still be able to get deals on flights and seat sales and things like that, or do you think that's going to be sort of going by the wayside? 
Well, the old fights to me is always a, a function of, of uh, how much competition is in the marketplace. So, for example, uh, you know, one carrier, AirTrans, that has been having a tougher time the past two years with the evolution of Air Canada's uh, lower-cost subsidiary Rouge, as well as the expansion of WestJet to overseas, uh, a number of European leisure carriers. And, and one great example was, uh, for years, it was British Airways and Air Canada flew to London Heathrow Airport and Transat flew to London Gatwick. Well, this past summer, we had Rouge start Toronto to Gatwick, and we had WestJet start Toronto to Gatwick. So if you had to go to London, it was a great time to be shopping for prices for that particular route. So it can be very route-specific, but again, it just depends on, on what competition we have out there. And that's why some people are calling for uh, you know, at least one ultra-low-cost carrier to succeed in this country uh, because of the so-called duopoly between Air Canada and the WestJet. Really interesting stuff. Robert Kokonis, thanks so much for this. Anytime, Bob. All right, great to talk to you. Robert Kokonis is the President and Managing Director at AirTrav, Inc. So I gather from that that if you're going somewhere that is popular and a lot of flights go there, that's your best bet in order to uh, save money because it's the competition that creates the sales. So yeah, ticket prices expected to go up uh, for airlines in the U.S. in 2017, 2 to 3%. Uh, Delta leading the pack and others expected to follow suit. You've been listening to a segment from the best of the Night Side with Barb DiGiulio podcast. Log on, listen and download the latest podcast right now by visiting Newstalk1010.com.